Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to a very special Stats Geek edition of the Forward Press Podcast, presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusak, and this week, my very special guest is Columbia School of Business professor, Dr. Mark Brody. Mark, as many of you know, is at the forefront of the golf analytics movement, and he's the author of Every Shot Counts, the book that really kick-started this whole strokes-gained revolution, really changed the way a lot of people, including tour pros, look at how golf is played at the elite levels and what it takes to be successful. During our conversation, Mark and I dispelled some myths and debunked some cliches about what it takes to win on the PGA Tour. We also looked at the dreadful lack of stats, unfortunately, in women's golf. Then we talked about the relationship between golf analytics and sports gambling. And finally, I asked Mark which historical player season, maybe Ben Hogan's 1953 or Bobby Jones's 1930 when he won the Grand Slam, maybe a special year from Arnold Palmer or Jack Nicklaus, who does he wish that he could cover and go back and analyze analytically? I think his answer is going to surprise you. Get stronger, hit longer, and end pain with Golf Forever. Created by Justin Leonard and co-author of the Younger Next Year Back Book, Dr. Jeremy James, Golf Forever is the Take Anywhere online golf fitness program that helps you build a body prime for golf. It's simple, safe, and it works. At home, in the gym, on the golf course, Golf Forever's easy-to-follow exercises, warm-up routines, and course management videos will help you play your best pain-free. Sign up today at GolfForever.com and use promo code GOLFWEEK for a free 14-day trial. Welcome to the Forward Press Podcast, Professor Mark Brody. Mark is a professor of economics at the Columbia School of Business in New York and is also the author of Every Shot Counts, using the revolutionary strokes gained approach to improve your golf performance and strategy. And if you're somebody who is a recreational player, weekend golfer, you're looking to shave a couple strokes, you're looking to get a better idea about some of the golf analytics that are bantered around now on broadcasts and in by people like me on golfweek.com and other websites as well, I cannot recommend this book enough. It's been out for a few years now. It is still sort of, in my mind, the gold standard of golf analytics and sort of golf statistic stuff. And it's written in a nice way where even if you don't have a, a math background or a stats background, if you're somebody who just loves golf, you're going to be able to understand a lot of the concepts that Mark is is able to put down in there. So, uh, Mark, welcome aboard. It's good to talk to you. Thanks for having me on, David. It's uh, it's been a it, I'm I'm looking forward to this, and uh, we've known each other for a while and had some great conversations. So this will be fun. Uh, you are actually the subject, the main subject of one of my favorite golf analytics stories. You probably aren't even aware of this, but when you and Sean Foley presented your book at the MIT Sloan. Sports Analytics Conference several years ago. What is that about? About 2015 or 14? 14. 14. 14. Um, 14. Yep. So 14. I, I left that conference. It usually goes on a Friday, Saturday. And if I'm not mistaken, you guys presented on a Saturday. And the following Monday, I had to fly down to the PGA Tour event, which was being held at Doral, when we still used to go to Doral. And I got out there. And Mondays in Doral were usually pretty slow. And half the field didn't even show up. They would be playing in a member pro event at Seminole, and yep. the, the PGA Tour reps for various manufacturers would, would be on site, and they would, they'd be practicing their putting because there's nobody on the practice greens, but they kind of needed to be there in case somebody showed up. And I remember one of the guys who I will not name uh, out of fear of embarrassing this poor guy, uh, who I like a lot and is still a very good friend of mine, but, but he was like, oh, I, you, you went off to this, this numbers conference. I said, yeah, you know, it was really enlightening, and, and I learned a bunch of stuff, and I, and I had a chance to listen to Sean and Mark give this presentation about what really is happening in golf tournaments that a lot of times we don't realize. And he said, well, I'll, I'll tell you who's going to win golf tournaments and who, who's the best player is. It's the guy who putts the best. To which, at that point, I decided <laughs> not even to enter into the debate because, to me, that represents exactly the kind of thinking that your book and a lot of people who are into golf analytics, and I raised my hand high on that one, that we have been battling these 
sort of pre preconceptions and mindsets and almost these cliches for as long as people have been playing golf and certainly as long as people have been studying golf trying to figure it out. How much to this sort of like long winding road here to, to get to a question, how much do you think that we have learned as a sport and gotten better at understanding what's actually happening at the elite level in professional golf? Well, I think that the uh, the PGA Tour did a great job in putting strokes gain stats on their website and giving them to the media and the broadcasters and to, and to fans. And I think that has, over the last several years, made a huge difference in how people view the game. And people knew that just counting putts was um, not very not a very good thing to do. Somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, chips in from off the green and they say, oh, their, their putting stats just got better, which, of course, it has nothing to do with your putting if you chip in from, from off the green. So people yeah. knew that just tracking fairways and tracking putts or tracking greens and regulations wasn't a good thing to do, but there wasn't anything better at the time. And with the advent of all the shot link data, which records where every shot starts and where every shot finishes by every player at every event, then you can do some real analysis and understand what's really going on to make these players great or what happens when, when they win tournaments. So I think it's, it's taken a while. All, all new things take, uh, take a while to uh, get absorbed into the vernacular and into the discussion, whatever. But I think it's made a huge difference because you can see over the course of a season who's putting well, who's driving the ball well, and over, you know, in one event – you know, what, what happened for, for a player to win. And I think that's really changed how uh, people view uh, golf performance. And it's, it's been great, I think. I think it's changed, uh, changed a few minds out there. Well, you do quite a bit of work with television stuff. You've had a relationship with Fox. Um, you've consulted with the PGA Tour, I'm sure, different certainly tour players, and we're going to get to that, but also with the USGA uh, and such. How has the improved analytics and how has the sort of deeper understanding of things that you get into affected the way that golf is broadcast on television and what people see on Saturdays and Sundays? Well, I think it just um, gives people a better, a better picture of, of what's going, what's going on. And it, I, I hear um, even a little bit more on the radio than on, on television, because on television, you can, you can see, you can see the shots, you could see, you know, what the conditions are, what the players are doing. But on the radio, you've got to describe things a lot more. And it seems like the, uh, uh, the PGA Tour announcers on, on Sirius XM rely on strokes gained a lot more than, than they do on, on national broadcasts. And I think, you know, there's just still a little bit of a, of a hurdle. It's so, so much easier to say a player has taken 25 putts then because people are used to that they they know what it means even if mm-hmm. it can be misleading right then to talk about you know they gain 2.3 strokes with their putting if you don't know already know what that means it's still a little bit of a, a hurdle for some people um but i think there's still a long way to go in terms of uh in terms of broadcasting when you know they're filling up airtime with things like well this player is two for five in in sand saves this week it's like well that doesn't really give right. you much information about anything. It's just sort of a waste of this valuable airtime. And, and to me, it's, it's an example of there are statistics that have been used for a while that people know that when you start to think about them, they become almost worthless. And for example, you, you mentioned sand safe. Scrambling is one of those statistics that to me is almost not even worth the, the paper and the ink that's used to, to print up the sheets and show it to you because as per your example – you don't know if a player hits the ball into a bunker and is able to get up and down in two shots. You don't know, based off of just that simple fact, whether it was a poor bunker shot that barely got up on the green and then they made a long putt, or if they hit an outstanding bunker shot to, say, within a foot and just tapped it in, or hit a mediocre bunker shot and then made, say, like a six or seven or eight footer and were able to save par that way. It doesn't It doesn't tell the story, whereas... Many other statistics that we have today, um, and we'll sort of get into some of this stuff, tell a much richer story. It also doesn't tell you, in some cases, when people have a low scrambling percentage, 
oftentimes, as you and I have discussed in, in our conversations, some players are just really aggressive on their approach shots, and they choose to play at the pin with the consequence being if they miss, they miss in a really bad spot. They short-side themselves. They leave themselves in a very awkward position. And that means the likelihood of them getting up and down is pretty low, relatively speaking. So your scrambling stats can be affected by the shots that you hit from the fairway. And just the stat scrambling percentage tells none of that stuff. Exactly. And I think you understand that at uh, a very fine sort of nuanced level. I'll give you another example which um, I think is, is even more dramatic and, and, and simpler in ways that, you know, scrambling is defined as do you make par um, when you miss a green in, in regulation? Right. And it, the, the idea is supposed to be, well, you miss a green, do you get up and down? So it's a... It's, it's well-intentioned. Measure. Pardon? It's, it's well-intentioned. The statistic and the, and the well idea and the concept is totally well-intentioned. Well-intentioned, and it's designed to measure how good are you with your wedge just off the green, and do you sink the, the putt after that? The problem with the way it's defined is if a player hits the ball into the woods, chips out, and is 200 yards away on a par four, well, he's missed the green in regulation. He now hits the 200-yard uh, iron shot to three feet and sinks the putt. And that counts as a successful scramble. And the player never had a wedge in his hand, and the player never sunk a difficult putt, but yet it counts as a successful scramble. Uh, on, on the other hand, let's take a look at a player who hits a drive in the fairway, uh, pulls the ball to the left into the water on the approach shot, so misses the green in regulation, takes a drop, gets up and down for bogey, and that counts as an unsuccessful scramble. <laughs> so you, <laughs> and it's just, you know, un, you know, the law of unintended consequences. The stat was not supposed to measure those things in, in that way. The one should not, you know, from 200 yards should not have been called a successful scramble because it didn't involve a wedge or a putt. And the other that did involve a, a wedge and a putt counts as an unsuccessful scramble. It's just backwards so yeah. like you said you 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 actually have to ignore that because of uh the way you know it's defined it's just not a, a great use of the this fabulous shot link data that's out there well and you mentioned shot link and it brings up actually one of my pet peeves that we we're at the start of a period of time where we're going to get inconsistent data and inconsistent statistics coming to us really until i i would argue and we can sort of talk about this until we get into sort of february and the end of the West Coast swing. And what I mean by that is that last week we had the CJ Cup, which is an, an official PGA Tour event. It was won by Justin Thomas, um, who is an actually a, a stat sheet stuffer in my mind. I mean, the, the guy just <laughs> fills it up. But the tour did not bring the equipment necessary to produce shot link statistics, which means all of the mechanisms that allow them to track shots literally to the inch off the tee and from the fairway and around the green. Without that equipment... You can't create strokes gain statistics. You can't do anything other than counting stats. So number of fairways hit, greens and regulation, the aforementioned and now completely debunked scrambling statistics, etc. Um, we're also going to start to get into events where you have multiple courses and multiple venues and you only have shot link on one of those courses and not all of them. For example, at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, there is shot link when the players play at Pebble Beach Golf Links. But when they play at the other courses at that venue, for example, at Spyglass Hill, we don't have shot link at Spyglass. Um, based on that and the fact that we're into a new season, when do you think that the pros have played enough golf for us to get an idea about what's actually happening statistically and during, during the season and for season-long stats to really become meaningful? When do you start to, to say that that's good, now we're getting a picture? So what I, what I like to do is look at a player over at, at least a year and then break their play up into smaller sub-periods like, like quarters to see what's sort of the, the long-term picture and then what's the short-term trend. Mm -hmm. And so instead of starting every new season fresh from scratch, 
I look at it as more of a, a rolling window where as the fall progresses, we sort of ignore what was happening last fall, but we still have um, the, the calendar year 2019 mm-hmm. in our data, which is a little bit different than, you know, the season long stats that the tour does, but it's, it's a question of the purpose of, of the stats. And so the PGA tour wants to have the stats based on a season and start afresh every, every year. Whereas players are all often interested in, you know, how am I doing? Where are my strengths and weaknesses? And I think you want to go about those in, in slightly different ways. And it is a shame, as you mentioned, that there isn't shot tracking information at, at every event, especially international events and multi-course events. And this is just a question of the economics. It's the same reason yep. we don't have, you know, shot tracking data uh, on the European tour, on the LPGA tour, on the Corn Ferry tour. So it would be nice if there was perhaps a uh, more economical shot tracking solution for for some of the other tours it may not be you know to one inch accuracy like like the lasers uh that that shot link has on the pga tour but it would certainly be be great to to fill in to fill in some of these holes well it's it's interesting so coming off of that i have had a chance to talk to i'm not going to say a lot but but maybe about a dozen lpga tour players over the last year to year and a half and ask them about statistics and as you mentioned they they simply don't have the money and the resources on the LPGA Tour to replicate what the PGA Tour can do with ShotLink. Um, the LPGA Tour statistics are a half a click above embarrassment, and but not not much more than that. And and if you're somebody who wants to learn a lot about the LPGA Tour and about some of those players, aside from just watching the golf on television, you're you're going to be at a loss. It's really difficult to sort of tell exactly what's happening, where you can do that much more fully on the PGA Tour. But in speaking with the women who were, who are out there, it seems like some of them, it's almost like they're about a decade to a decade and a half behind the guys, and, and for very understandable reasons, in that some of them are into stats, some of them have their coaches mandate when they certainly play practice rounds, when they're playing recreational golf, they keep very detailed statistics, fairways hit, distances some of them have gone to systems that are you know effectively where they put tags into their clubs um arcos and shotlink and shot scope other mechanisms to try and get a little bit better understanding about their game and that and that can be and that can work but in with that sort of under that umbrella what do we really know about the lpga tour from a statistical standpoint uh, unfortunately not not very much and it's it's frustrating as as you said and it, you can tell better stories when you have when you have better data, and it's it is hard to tell a good story when all you have is uh, whole scores, and that's and that's about it. And even that doesn't go back all that all that far. I was talking to uh, Justin Ray uh, a few days ago, and he joked that the answer for any LPGA record is, well, Annika Sorenstam. <laughs> and that's because they don't, they don't have the information. It's, it's frustrating for the PGA Tour that prior to 1983, they don't even have complete round score information. So it's very hard mm-hmm. to know Johnny Miller, Jack Nicholas, all the sort of uh, Arnold Palmer, all the greats from, from back then. This is, this is where I'm jealous of all the people who write about baseball and to some degree basketball, but certainly the baseball guys who have detailed box scores going back into the 1800s so that you can establish stats and comparative analysis like war, like um, all these other different things. We will never have that. That data is gone, and we can't replicate it, and that's that's frustrating. Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very sad, and uh, I think all we can hope for are some enterprising uh, individuals that are looking at uh, – microfilm or microfiche in, in libraries trying to recreate some of what's mm-hmm. what's happened in, in the past. And then, of course, going forward, it would be nice if if we had, uh, you know, just better, more complete data uh, for for multiple multiple tours going going forward. So Peter Costas was recently on this podcast, and um, he's also one of the more analytically minded people that's out there in the broadcast arena and he recently was telling me that uh, and it said a bunch of times during broadcast that the players that typically are in contention and win PJ tour events are the hottest putters 
among the elite ball strikers. Is that accurate? I think that's that's very accurate. And, you know, any given week, anything can happen. And there are certainly examples when, say, Vijay Singh won a, won a tournament when he putted worse than uh, the field average. And there's also examples of people winning almost solely due to their putting and not, not due to their ball striking. But by and large, the, uh, the people that, that win tournaments, you know, the, the people, the, the players that are at the top of the leaderboard tend to be the best ball strikers, and mm-hmm. the winners tend to be the best putters out of the best ball strikers. And I think that's a, a very accurate generalization. Every general, no, no generalization is perfect, but I think that's uh, a pretty accurate way to, to look at things. And if you, you know, take a look at the top 10 of the official world golf rankings, you have players like Roy McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, and Brooks Kepka and others that are just elite ball strikers. And they're not, they're not the best putters. They, they tend to um, be, you know, better than field average, but they're not in the top 10 in, in strokes game putting typically. Uh, there are some exceptions like Jason Day and, and Jordan Spieth. But, but by and large, if you take a look at the, the top 10 of the official World Golf Rankings or the top 10 of the FedEx Cup points list year in and year out, um, those players are the ones that are the best ball strikers. And then you say, well, what happens when they win? Well, for any player to win, they have to play better than their average. Mm-hmm. And so what, what do they do better? Well, they tend to hit their approach shots a little bit closer to the hole, and then they tend to sink a few more putts. And that's, that's it. Yeah, it's, and it's, so it's not get, some magical hot putter. Yeah, it's not some hocus-pocus thing that happens. It's, it's very understandable when you start looking at the long-term trends and then players who compete and what they finally do. The result of, of their 72 holes fits beautifully, almost always, into that template, doesn't it? It, it does, and I think that explains a, a lot about why, you know, strokes gained is being become more, more accepting, uh, accepting by the, uh, the golf community. One is the hardest part of the game to measure prior to the shot tracking data was approach shots because greens and regulation just doesn't do it, and certainly fairways hit and driving distance doesn't measure approach shots either. So approach shots were you know, the hardest, the hardest thing to, to measure. And if you just took a look at winners each week, you would see often hot putters. And that's where I think the misconception came that it's all about putting, but it's not all about putting. It's when you have, you know, the top 10 or top 20 ball strikers and the hot putter tends to win. (laughs) Well, that's, that's, a, I think, a better and more accurate description of, of how the, uh, the golfing world works. Yeah, to, to me, it's, it's just I, the, when, when people ask me for sort of the layman's example, or, or I should say the layman's explanation for this, it would be as if you're simply just giving a player who may not be as good putting. If we set up a putting course, um, there are some guys who would do better than others. But if you said, okay, I want to give you a bunch of birdie putts, and I'm going to give Dustin Johnson nine, and I'm going to give Brad Faxon three. And who's going to make more birdie <laughs> putts total at the end of those sessions? Even if Dustin Johnson misses you know, just under half, he's giving himself numerically more opportunities to make birdies, and therefore his ball striking, what creates those opportunities, is actually the most critical thing. And, and yes, it's, it's always better to make putts than to miss. You and I, I don't think anybody would ever argue that it's better to miss a putt than to make a putt. But but, but your example is is that you, you just have to numerically give yourself more chances. I went through for a, for a story on golfweek.com earlier this year, actually right after the 2018-19 PGA Tour season concluded, and I took a look at who made the biggest improvements in each one of the, the strokes gained statistical areas. And in doing some of the research on exactly this point, um, I found and I took a look at the money won by the best putters versus the best ball strikers as well as world ranking. Because everybody understands money. Uh, we all love to have money. And it's understood that you want to become higher on the world ranking rather than lower. And the average official world golf ranking for players who finished in the top 10 in strokes game putting 
was 151. The average, <laughs> the average world ranking for the players who finished in the top 10 in strokes gained approach the green was 34. So better than uh, we're talking about 120 world ranking points on average better for the approach shot guys than the putting guys. The putting guys, the top 10 in strokes game putting averaged a little over $1.2 million in official PGA Tour prize money. The guys who were top 10 in approach averaged $3.3 million. And the really interesting kicker was Brooks Kepka and Roy McIlroy finished 11th and 12th. So they just missed getting included in that number in strokes gained approach. Between the two of them, they won an official prize money about $35 million. So, you know, th- those numbers are pretty indisputable. Um, and to me, it's, it's, it's a really interesting kind of a thing. The people that I find who ask me these questions more and more are people who are really into fantasy golf and into gambling. And as gambling mm-hmm. has become legal in more states and without question, I live in Connecticut, it's going to come to the state of Connecticut much sooner than it is later. It's going to come to other places as well. Um, how much do you think the world of golf analytics is going to be pushed forward and will will that be will some real innovation come because people are into fantasy golf and looking to try and get an edge in sports gambling well you you mentioned how it's how it's growing and in in new jersey apparently the uh the dollar value of uh legalized sports gambling in new jersey has already eclipsed las vegas and they sort of figured that wasn't going to happen for you know, two or three years, and it happened pretty much in the first year. Mm-hmm. So it is, uh, it is big, and it's it's going to be bigger. And what what I like about it is the the opportunity to drive more interest in golf. Golf is sort of the perfect sport for in game betting, and you have players that you know play a hole, and then there's a couple minutes in between uh, shots and the and the next tee shot. So it's not too off, far off in the future where you'll be able to uh, watch, uh, watch an event on TV and bet whether you know, um, Roy McIlroy is going to drive the ball further than, than Tiger Woods and maybe hit the fairway or, or, or not, or whether one player is going to knock an approach shot in, inside 10 feet or, or not. So I think that's, that's where it's heading, and in order – to be able to to make markets on on those kind of bets, you want to have sort of accurate shot tracking data. And for the sharp bettors out there, they're going to be diving into that sort of uh, information very very uh, carefully. So the same for you know the same data is used for players to try and get better, but it's also going to be used by uh, by sports betters in order to to try and to try and make money, but I think for the the general public, you know, if you if you have a favorite player and that player is not in the top ten, instead of not watching because you know they're not going to win, well, maybe you have a bet on whether uh, Jason Day's strokes gain putting will eclipse a certain mark or not. Now you're interested in every putty hits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I think the the possibility to increase fan engagement and, and drive increased uh, interest in viewership is is exciting. Yeah, I think I think it has the opportunity to be huge, especially as technology. I mean, I I became a cord cutter with my family about three years ago, so we use um, Roku sticks to basically allow my old TVs to become smart TVs, and then Hulu Live to watch whatever we want. All these different things. Um, obviously, doing what I do, I, I subscribe and I watch a lot of PGA tour golf, it, it would seem like not a huge leap to be able to see a subscription service that allowed you to watch sports and have on your television in game betting or in game wagering of some type where hitting a button on your remote control or on some app that, that controlled your TV and they already have those things would allow you to, to do in game wagering, you know, about whether it's exactly. going to be head to head to head. I think that, um, you know, Brooks Kepka is going to beat Dustin Johnson today head to head in the third round. Well, that's that's an easy one to do. I think that Roy, all these different things, it becomes very simple. I guess my question, as far as trying to push our understanding of the game, when you work with players and you've worked with several, you you end up finding out things that I'm not going to say are completely you know kept off the radar, but but it's it's looked at as a competitive advantage or trying to create a competitive edge. 
would you anticipate that a lot of the learnings and a lot of the stuff that would come out of research done by sports gambling and sports fantasy experts, will that stuff also sort of stay behind a curtain and in terms of trying to maintain a competitive edge? I think uh, sports bettors will try and keep things behind the curtain, but uh, just one thing that I think is is fairly obvious to to you and me, and fairly well known among the the betting community, which is um, there's a lot more variability in putting from round to round and week to week than there is, say, in in driving. Right. Roy McIlroy has his driver is a is a weapon, and the distance that he can hit it and yeah. the accuracy that he can hit it happens round after round, week after week. And the variability from one round to the next is, well, did he hit uh, eight fairways or ten fairways? And that certainly matters, but it's not like he all of a sudden can only hit the ball 290 yards instead of 320 yards. That that doesn't happen. Right. Whereas week to week, a player can sink uh, seven out of eight eight footers one week instead of four out of eight, eight, eight footers. So putting tends to be quite variable. So where, where is the connection with, with betting? If you want to figure out who's favored next week, either outright or in head to head, you sort of want to separate, uh, the signal from the noise or the skill from the luck. And since there's a lot more variability in putting, what a lot of betters will do is focus on ball striking stats mm-hmm which would be strokes gained driving, strokes gained approach, or strokes gained uh, tee to green, and then downweight things like strokes gained putting. And that's just one example of how you can use uh, the shot tracking data to, to gain an edge in, in the betting markets. And I think that's, that's fairly well known, but it's, uh, it's those kind of ideas that can be applied uh, a little bit more more broadly uh, in in golf and mm-hmm. and also in other sports. Yeah, it, it was interesting to watch Rory over the course of this year, and and obviously he ends up winning the PGA Tours Player of the Year award. And and I looked at it as the Rory didn't do with a driver. I mean, he had an outstanding driving year, and to me, he's one of over the last five years the two or three best drivers, if not the best driver of the golf ball that there is. I mean, full stop. And he had a, he had a good driving year. He improved his performance off the tee. But the difference between Rory McIlroy this year as opposed to, say, two and three years ago uh, leading up to it is that Rory had the best putting season he's ever had, statistically. And mm-hmm. yep. he doesn't have to putt great. Again, going back to that, the, the difference between Rory McIlroy winning three or four tournaments and top tenning every single week. I mean, he was just an absolute ATM. Um, and Rory winning once or twice and then sort of fading, missing, is it's, it's the putter. And the putter doesn't have to be great. It just has to be good enough so that he's not giving away the advantage that he earns off the tee and from the fairway. And he was able to do that better this year than he ever had before. And because of that, he ends up having the season that he had, which was absolutely outstanding. Now, you've worked with several PGA Tour players over the course of the years. I know you've done a lot of work with Luke Donald, um, if I'm not mistaken, also Francesco Molinari. And, and did you ever work with... Eduardo as well. I think you did, right? Sure. Yeah, Eduardo Molinari was one of one of the first. Um, but yeah, though those players and a number of others. It's sort of uh, on my end, living living the dream here. I never <laughs> sort of imagined when I started doing some golf analytics research where where it would lead. And now I've uh, uh, done work for, spoken to many many of the uh, the top players. So it's been it's been a blast for me. When they come to you, do do, do they approach you? Does the agent or a caddy approach you? And what are they looking for, by and large? The the main thing is pretty much um, what you'd expect, which is where are my strengths and, and weaknesses exactly? So what if I have a, a limited amount of practice time and I want to be as efficient as, as possible, where should I uh, focus my, my efforts and, and attention? And it is... Um, not as obvious as it would seem because small margins really, really matter. I mean, mm-hmm. if a player can get a half a stroke better per round, huge. that's a huge difference Massive. in terms of FedEx cup points, money, how, however you want to measure. So a half a stroke per round, where, where do you want to, where do you want to focus your, your, your effort? 
and strokes gained not just in the broad four categories of of driving approach, short game, and putting, but you can you can narrow that down and dice and slice it in in ways that are much more meaningful uh, to uh, to players in terms of how they structure their practice, and you can take a look at. Uh, how well they do to back left hole locations versus front right hole locations. You can take a look at all all sorts of things. Um, Luke Donald, for instance, uh, a couple years ago fell out of the top ten in strokes gained putting, and he had been you know one of the best putters ever, just year after year, being one, two, or two or three, and he he fell out of the the top ten. And he thought that he was uh, three putting too much, and uh, we we had a, a discussion back and forth between uh, Luke Donald and his coach Pat Goss and and myself. And it turned out he had gone from being uh, a very aggressive putter uh, by by PGA Tour standards to a very conservative putter. And so what he was doing was was not that he was three putting too much. He was not one putting enough and he wasn't one putting enough because of his tendency to be a little bit more conservative on say 10 footers to 18 footers. He was just leaving them uh, more of those putts short. And that's something that you can, can see with the shot tracking data that you can't see if you just take a look at three putt rates. If somebody three putts, you don't know, well, was it because of a bad first putt? were a poor second putts. Right. Um, and it turns out, as I said, it wasn't, it wasn't even his three putts that were causing, causing the problem is that he wasn't one putting enough. So that's just an example of how you can dive a little bit deeper into the data to try and um, uh, provide some actionable insights. And in, in the case of Luke Donald, he worked with Pat Goss, who had a number of drills that he could you know, work on uh, on the practice putting green and out on the course, and also some some mental things in order to uh, recover his his former uh, you know aggressiveness. It wasn't you know wildly aggressive; it was appropriate mm-hmm. aggressiveness in in putting. And then and the next year he was he was back inside the top five in in strokes gained putting. So that was sort of a nice. Uh, success story. So that's an example of something that you can you can sort of peel back the onion to the root of the problem and and, and help players get to to their best performance levels. What can you not do for them? It's basically limited by by the data, and so it's very hard. For example, to get wind information on on shots it's very hard or if not impossible to get trajectory information on on shots so there's some trajectory information on on tee shots on two two driving holes but it's it's hard to um to do any analysis on approach shots if you don't know if the player is playing a straight shot or a slight cut or a slight draw and whether that's you know affecting their their proximity results or their their strokes gain results. So I think the things that I can't provide them are you know where there there isn't there isn't the data. Isn't data. And I have been able to to do some things with putting where you can look at left to right putts, right to left putts, downhill side hill putts, and uh, do things that are a little bit beyond just just looking at the distance of a putt, but with the shot link plus system there's going to be putt trajectory information and also approach shot uh landing on the green information so you'll be able to see uh the uh the angle that yeah the I, wanted, balls hit, hit I, want, the green I wanted to and, actually get into that with you a little bit so shot link plus for people who may not be aware is sort of the next evolution of shot link and right now the way that the system works is that um we know where the hole starts for everybody. So regardless of whether it's a par three, par four, par five, players have to start within sort of a designated area. Okay. And so then it can be measured where did their ball come to rest after they hit their tee shot. If it's a par four, where did their ball come to rest after their second shot? And you just start playing a game of connect the dots and make sure that you know, did the ball come to rest in fairway, in rough, in sand? Did it go in the water? Is it on the green? Where is it? And basically classify each thing. And at the end of the connected dots exercise, you have a hole, but it doesn't 
sort of give you any indication, for example, if an approach shot stops 10 feet from the hole, it doesn't tell you if the ball scampered up the front and ran past the hole and just came to rest 10 feet by, or if it flew 20 feet past, and then because of spin and descent angle and such like that, sucked back, you know, thanks to some tour sauce, to 10 feet. The new system, ShotLink Plus, is going to tell us a lot of that information. What are some of the things that you think we're going to be able to learn from that that are going to maybe open our eyes? Well, I think we'll learn sort of the value of, on long approach shots, having a steep uh, angle of descent and on Mm -hmm. uh, shorter shorter shots, say 80 to 100 yards, the value of of a um, flatter uh, angle of descent and also the, you know, the spin that, that happens on, on the greens. Mm-hmm. So I think what it'll tell is, uh, you know, number one, where is the impact location relative to the hole and where is the final resting position of the ball relative to the hole and our players, uh, playing the, the, the shot shape that, that's appropriate plus taking advantage of the contours of the green right so that as as you mentioned uh doing that successfully would mean things like the ball lands 30 feet from the hole but it ends up five feet from the hole as opposed to and lands five feet from the hole and ends up 30 feet from the hole Mm -hmm. and so that i think would uh would be incredibly fascinating and would also help players in terms of their uh, their practice. It would give them, you know, a little bit more information to, to work with in addition to, to better information on, you know, do you need to work on your downhill left to right putts more than your uphill right to left putts? And, uh, so the putt trajectory information I think would be, uh, useful as well. From a, from a broadcast standpoint, I think it would be fascinating to see if Fox or NBC or CBS or golf channel, whoever was able to develop a technology for approach shots that would be akin to the way that you sometimes lay out a line, the ideal path that we see on putts, which theoretically is a speed that would the ball would go 12 to 18 inches past the hole. And given the contours of the green, this is the ideal path. And you can watch the ball either stay on that path or go high or go low, and you're going to be able to anticipate pretty accurately whether that ball is going to go in as it's rolling. Um, to get some guy from the fairway and to superimpose – um, a parabola or some type of a shot shape that this is the ideal um, shape. If given the hole and given this amount of or, or where the player is, this is sort of an option or two that would theoretically get the ball there. That's doable. You know, as we get more and more information, we see more and more shots. We know that pitching wedges for pros are going to have a spin rate of you know nine to ten thousand RPM. Um, that if you want to get it to stop dead on this particular green, the guys who've done that have been within this range at this descent angle. And now that we have the leaders coming through, this is the shot they're trying to replicate. This is what you want to do. It would be fascinating to see, and I think it would really tell people, oh, wow, look at Tiger Woods or Jason Day or players who have by reputation are really high ball hitters. Are they going to be the guys who are going to bring it in really steep and be able to stop it on that, that pin? Or... Are, if there, for example, is a really strong wind, are they able to flight it down? The guys who by reputation and, and over time, as we build a statistical database on this, do high ball, who is the best high ball hitter who can flight it low in the wind? This type of technology would, would get us a look at that, wouldn't it? It would. And I think everything that you say is just so, so exciting. And the, the technology exists it's i think a a question of of the economics at the moment but Mm -hmm. i remember not too long ago when you would have on television broadcast just the picture of the ball in the blue sky and you have no idea what's you're lost what's going on what trajectory you're completely lost and now with the use of tracer on more and more shots i think you get a better appreciation for exactly how good these players are and being able to shape their shots and with the tracer technology tracing out this this arc of of the shot you can you can see what they're doing you can see how how wind is affecting it and you know not too you know far into into the future we'll have something like you know Sergio Garcia at Augusta when he puts whatever it was three balls in in the water in almost the exact same way you could see him 
hitting a wedge shot. It hits near the near the pin, and then it spins back into the water. And then he does it again, and then he does it again. And it wasn't a question of 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 not being able to control the the landing position. It was a question of being able to control the the spin. And having data to complete that story, I think, would be fascinating. So you mentioned Augusta National, and you and I have had numerous discussions about this, as well as other the major championships. The PGA of America has been providing, or has had shotling stats now for several years. I think the first one where they really had it, if I remember correctly, when I was at Baltusrol, I remember being just overjoyed that I could track a major championship statistically the way that I could uh, a regular week-to-week PGA Tour event, which from a writer's standpoint, and I think also from a golf fan standpoint, is one of the more unbelievable things. When I tell that to some of my friends who cover other sports, they, they just shake their heads in disbelief. If you were a player who, or a, a writer or a reporter who was covering baseball and you were going to be covering the World Series between you know, the Astros and the Nationals, to not have basic stats available in the World Series but to have them in a meaningless game in the middle of July, it just seems absolutely ridiculous. But yet that's, for the most part, where we have been historically – with regard to the major championships. Augusta National is the one that obviously we would love, I, personally, I, I would love the most to find out about that. The statistics that are provided by the Masters are very old-fashioned. They are, for example, statistics like the number of birdies made, which, <laughs> okay, congratulations, you scored more birdies <laughs> than somebody else, but I don't know what we're supposed right. to make of that. Um, the number of, of fairways hit, okay, that's I'd rather hit the fairway than miss it, I suppose, but beyond that, um, what are some things that you think we could learn about Augusta National and the Masters that we don't know already if we had shotling style statistics during that championship? Well, I think we'd be able to uh, compare Augusta National to other PGA Tour courses and figure mm-hmm. out, is there a bigger premium on better putting at Augusta National because of the very undulating fast greens and uh, we learn a little bit more about approach shots and what how much more difficult is it if you've got a 80 yard shot off of a downhill side hill lie mm-hmm. versus versus a level lie which is saying on you know on the second shot if you're laying up on a par five where is it where is it better to to lay up um, and you can have you can you can get results for those kind of questions with the shot tracking information that you just can't from the traditional you know counting stats that that you mm-hmm. mentioned so I think we could learn a lot about how the course plays what's what's going to be the effect of pushing this this tee back twenty or thirty more yards what's you know the landing the landing zone's going going to change and right. the approach shots are going to be more difficult but some things are obvious, but unless you have the shot tracking data, it can be harder harder to quantify. So, for example, if if players are using a three wood off the tee and you push the tees back 20 yards, and now they hit a driver to where they were hitting their three wood before, it may not make that much of a difference overall in the in the scoring. Although mm-hmm. some of the short hitters might be at more of a disadvantage. Sure. So there is this this notion a few years ago that uh, Augusta was making the course longer to tiger-proof the course. And I thought, <laughs> well, just, that just sounds the, just exactly the opposite. backwards because it, it seems like that's giving Tiger and the longer hitters more of an advantage rather than less of an advantage. But those kind of questions you can answer with shot-tracking information that you, mm-hmm. you can't answer without it. So, yeah, and just to that point, I had Ryan Moore on the show last week, and he was talking about that and being a, a straight hitter but not a long hitter. Um, and we talked about Augusta and how it matched with his game and his style. And he we agreed that as you lengthen golf courses, you're actually hurting the short players and, and giving indirectly a much bigger advantage to the guys who already hit it far, which is just the opposite of usually what golf course designers and tournament operators are intending to do. Um, I would look at the Masters, and over the course of years, we, for example, Jordan Spieth has had spectacular performances at Augusta National, and he has had recently some troubles, but he seems to be rebounding in many different ways. He had a great putting year 
last year on the tour. His ball striking stats went down significantly. Um, But I would love to be able to track players' performances and to be able to look at how some players lifted their game and over the course of time consistently outperformed at the Masters um, compared to week-to-week PGA Tour events. It's something that there's a cliche that the you know an athlete lifts their game or they, they're able to find a new level, whatever cliche you want to pull out of the bag when they come to the biggest tournaments. The U.S. Open goes to different venues every year. Now, we come back to Pebble Beach about once a decade. We come back to St. Andrews on a regular basis, but there's so much quirky wind and weather that it's difficult maybe to, to sort of compare 72 holes from one decade to another. But Augusta National, by and large, is the same golf course, or at least it is the same golf course. They've made several modifications. The weather is, by and large, fairly consistent. Spring in Georgia. It would be just phenomenal yeah. to be able to look at 20 years of Jordan Spieth and see how he was able to do that, how his game evolved, where he elevates his game, where he struggles, and, and other players as well. You know, For example, to give historical context to which one of Tiger Woods' victories at Augusta National was statistically the best. It's very difficult mm-hmm. to, uh, for us to be able to compare 2019 Tiger you know, to 1997 Tiger. And how, how does that compare, you know, with other wins that he's had? How does, how does statistically 2019 Tiger compare with 2004 Phil Mickelson? Well, we, we don't know. And unfortunately, we're never going to have that data because we obviously can't go back and replicate it. But to me, that would be, from a storyteller position, the most appealing and, and the most interesting thing. We can finally start to compare players on a much more apples to apples or maybe like oranges to tangerines at least rather than you know oranges to apples um it would be amazing um speaking of apples to apples this is going off as we sort of come to the conclusion here a little bit on the fantasy land who do you wish you had data on from historically important golfers the bobby jones and the ben hogan's and the uh, byron nelson's of the world is there somebody that you just for your own self-interest wish you know that you had the ability to break down their game the way you can a modern player so I'm, I don't think you'll like the answer to, to this question, but I think one of the great advantages of the shot tracking information is that you get data on all the players playing in an event that, that year. And that way you can compare Tiger Woods not on just an absolute level, how far does he hit it, but mm-hmm. how far did he hit it relative to the field. And so I think if you if you gave me all of the uh, the the shot tracking data for Bobby Jones or for Ben Hogan, that wouldn't help a whole lot because the equipment, the balls, the courses were so different back then that what I'd want to know is are you, are you going to say are you going to say all the players are you going to say two thousand Tiger? <laughs> well, yeah, 2000 Tiger would be <laughs> would be phenomenal. Yep. So uh, just like every LPGA Tour record, if you don't know the answer, well, it's probably Annika. Well, every PGA Tour record, if you don't know the answer, it's probably Tiger Woods 2000. Um, yeah. But I'd love to have, uh, you know, the equivalent of shot tracking information for uh, an entire event, say, you know, the U.S. Open in 1952 or something like that. Yeah. That would be phenomenal. It'd be pretty cool. But I, I've, I've gone through this exercise as well. And every time I'm trying to do some historical Tiger stuff, you run into this problem where the ultimate season the golfers probably ever have, short of, you know, Bobby Jones' Grand Slam, um, is 2000 Tiger. And it, it seems like it's not that long ago, so we should have it. And obviously we don't. But to to have a really deep understanding from a statistical level, like how big was that advantage off the tee at Pebble Beach? Or was it the Irons? Or I mean yeah. it's it's to have a look at that amount of greatness when you go back and folks, if you ever haven't, you know, five or ten minutes just to sit there and watch your jaw drop, um, go to the PGA Tours website, fire up Tiger Woods, and even just the stats they have for his 2000 season, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, it's one of those things where he was not only the best player, he was the best driver. His scoring average was the best. He was amongst the best putters. His scoring average per round, you know, first round, second round, third round, fourth round was, was, you know, the best. It's just everything you can think of. Um, to have a player today 
if anybody ever even came close to that, to being the one of the longest players, if not the longest player, distance-wise off the tee, hitting more greens in regulation, and being amongst the most elite putters, it's not a fair fight. And it sure wasn't a fair fight in 2000. And I agree that to see his 2000 statistically laid out the way that we have it today would be pr- pretty unbelievable stuff. Yeah, so one of the... Uh you know, the stats that, that I really like relative to, to that is, um, uh, the beat, the beat the field streak, who, which player has the longest, uh, beat the field streak. And I sort of, uh, liken this to Joe DiMaggio in 1941, where he had a hitting streak of 56 straight games of getting a, a base hit successfully. And that record has been called, you know, one of the greatest records in in all of sports to be able to get hits in 56 straight straight games, and then you, um, you know, how do you how do you think about that? Well, roughly getting it's not like getting hit in one at bat. You have multiple at bats to get hit, so it's for an average batter, it's about a 50-50 proposition uh, to get a hit in in a game. Uh, so. Let's let's think about golf now. What what does it mean for a player uh, to beat the field in in one round? Well, if a player shoots a 69 and the field average is 72.3, well, the 69 was better than the field average. So you a player in one round beats the field if their score that round was better than roughly half the players in the field. So it's it's roughly a 50-50 proposition for mm-hmm. for each player. So a beat the field streak would be, you know, beating the round, beating the field round after round after round after round. And the question is, how long is the longest beat the field streak in PGA Tour history? So all players, all events going going back as long as we have data for, which is 1983. And I asked a number of PGA Tour pros and lots of uh, recreational golfers, my friends and club pros and others, and most guests around 20 to 25 would be the longest number of rounds in a row uh, beating the field. And it turned out that, no, no, the answer is not 20 to 25. It's Tiger Woods at 89 <laughs> rounds in a row that he beat the field, 89 straights. It's just it's mind-boggling. And, of course, that was in the 1999-2000 time period. And so they say that, you know, the Joe DiMaggio 56-game hitting streak was one of the most phenomenal stats in all of sports. Well, who was second on that list? Second on the all-time list is Pete Rose with a 44-game hitting streak. Mm -hmm. So first was Joe DiMaggio at 56. Second was uh, Pete Rose at 44. So in golf, the longest uh, beat the field streak is Tiger at 89. Second? You have any idea what second place is? Oh my gosh, um, <laughs> I I wouldn't even finish. So it's got to be somebody steady, somebody there. I'm gonna say um, I'm gonna guess out of the blue, VJ Singh, um, and I'm oh, gonna that's... I'm gonna guess something like um, oh boy, I'll, I'll say something. I'll say 21. Okay, it was that's a great guess. Uh, Mark O'Meara is second with 33 straights. We never would have guessed O'Meara. Not in a million years would I have guessed O'Meara. I thought maybe Vijay Singh in that 2003-2004 vintage, um, he was he was right up there. Maybe he, he caught a long streak. It's amazing. It's um, I guess the last question I'll have is, from you've gone through obviously as many Tiger numbers as we've, we've got available to us. Do you think that the general public and general sport fans really appreciate how dominant for the most part, he has been throughout most of his career? Well, I would say the short answer is yes. I mean, why does, you know, people say the tiger doesn't move the needle. He is the needle. Whenever tiger shows up to an event, the, the interest is just incredible. So I think that is some indication of the acknowledgement of general golf fans that they're seeing, Mm -hmm history in the making almost any time that, it, that he tees it up or they're, they're watching one of the greatest players, if not the greatest player ever. So I think just the way that the, the viewership, the attendance, the interest always increase, you know, when he's in the field, it's, it's, uh, 
you know, the headline is Tiger wins an event, and if he doesn't, the headline is Tiger didn't win doesn't this week. Win an event. Exactly. It's uh, <laughs> so it, it's it's focused on Tiger, and I think deservedly so because he's been so phenomenal, had such a phenomenal career. Well, you deserve a big thank you from me for giving me this much of your time. I uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mark Brody. Thank you, David. Pleasure. Thank you.